Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, happy new year. Happy New Year. It's 2023. I don't, yeah, I, I, I'm like struggling, uh, to come up with something witty to post about like new year, new me, you know, something like that. It's just, again, well, I think we're, I, we're both ringing in the new year with, uh, with acute back pain. So that's uh, something yeah. to celebrate for both. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hooray. Had like a banner week of training and then I don't know, we'll get to that. Uh, but first, uh, this podcast is brought to you by pioneer belts. You can check them out over at generalleathercraft.com. If you are interested in a new belt for 2023, they will make you a custom belt, whatever width, whatever size, whatever prong, lever, adherence, <laughs> contraption you, you, you want. They also have wrist wraps and wrist straps over there. And uh, come to find out, they do actually make golf head covers. So if you're you know, a lifter, go golfer, crossover person, they already make them. I'm still waiting for my custom BBM head covers, but, uh, also, you know, I think about if I'm on the golf course, I don't know, like, what would my, my driver head cover be? Would it just be a barbell? Would it be like a weight? Would it be pill man? I don't know. I'm uninformed on these things. I swung a golf club for like the second time ever last week. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Austin went, you went to top golf, which yeah. is, did you like it? Did you have fun? Yeah, it was a good time. We have a top golf basically in our in our backyard here in El Paso compared to where we live, and so um, went with my wife and on and one of uh, one of her friends. Uh, just kind of killed an afternoon. Uh, learned how to. I just kind of figured it out based on what I've seen, <laughs> and ended up, you know, I guess scoring decently in terms of like hitting targets. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I saw that you crushed Lorraine and her friend. <laughs> yeah. Just athletes. It was it was interesting. Just like you know, uh, I guess observing in real time my own like motor learning and adjustment process. Um, yeah, because I'd only been. You know, you can like theoretically, quote unquote, know how to swing a golf club from having seen other people do it. And then you start doing it and getting a feel for the resistance and the weight and the angle and then seeing how the ball leaves your club head and stuff like that. And then adjusting, be it my stance or how I'm holding it or whatever the case is and, and seeing how those adjustments play out. It's just kind of a fun, you know, reminder of that same motor learning process that we would have gone through with any other physical task that we've done. Yeah, I, th I do wonder like the I don't know what the natural trajectory is for people picking up that sport or a similar sport where there is this high skill component to it, you know, um, like if you have a background in other sports, do you pick it up faster versus not? And I think just having general athleticism or general strength, general strength conditioning, like levels likely portends a better outcome. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like, did I pick up golf faster than most people? Did you pick up golf faster? Would yeah, you? Versus, no. versus the alternative of athletes tend to do a bunch of things well instead of doing things, you know, multiple things leads you to do well in subsequent things. That's kind of an interesting, there's probably elements of both, of course. And then, and you know, another relate, semi-related thing, um, I guess uh, my wife convinced me to go with her to like the, 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 
group CrossFit workout or whatever Saturday morning. Did you, did you crush it? It was like a partner thing. So me and her were like, you know, it was like whatever a chipper, I guess you call it, where you, you and your partner will complete the whole thing in alternating fashion. And mm. yes, we like destroyed everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was like, but but again, I'd not done, you know, be it like even butterfly pull ups or something in like I don't know eight years or something like that, 10 years. And it was like the first round were, were kind of ugly. And then the second round I was like, oh yeah, I remember how to do this. Remember and this. they were all, you know, normal. So yeah. it was just kind of a similar interesting thing of how that motor patterning kind of comes back. And, and there's definitely elements of athleticism that uh, play into all of that stuff and performance and how it comes back. Plus being strong can't be wrong. You know, you got a bigger, <laughs> bigger, bigger motor doesn't slow the car down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in any case, yeah, if you guys are um, in the market for a new belt uh, for you or a loved one, head over to Pioneer Belts at generalleathercraft.com. Support those who support us. Uh, hey, new announcement or some announcements. We've got a new website, brand new website. We've completely redesigned it. It was We were down for maintenance uh, for a couple hours uh, yesterday, and now it's up, and it's pretty. Uh, yeah, so far, I think it looks sharp. Yeah, the feedback we've gotten so far has been great. So if you want to do us a favor, head over to our website, barbellmedicine.com. Check out one of our articles or something. Now you can share it directly on social media if you like. Um, my vote is for the progressive loading article. That that one, I think if more people read that now, the beginning of 2023, then we're going to have people better set up for success throughout this year, more likely to meet their goals without you know, having too many injuries, for example, or uh, not necessarily making progress. Uh, you know, because they kind of misunderstand what is progressive loading. Uh, and then, you know, with the hat tip to the beginner template, the beginner prescription, rather, our free beginner program on the website. So both of those would be my recommendation. Uh, Austin, if you had one article from our site that you want people to read for to kick off 2023, what would it be? Uh, probably the health priorities article, but that's my, you know, medical bias coming in. I think what you, I think the article that you mentioned is, is excellent uh, for, um, a, a healthier mental approach to training in terms of your understanding of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and and how to progress this idea of if you are responding to the programming, then you'll be able to perform at a higher level without wrecking yourself um, and, and kind of letting the, letting the gains come to you, so to speak, as we've talked about before. And then on the health and medical realm, yeah, the seven health priorities article that Tom and I uh, did, whatever, a year or two ago is still, uh, I stand by all of that. Yeah, we'll link that. Link those articles in the description below so you guys can check it out on the new website. Um, also, I've been uh, I've been a little trying to be a little more active on the uh, Twitter before that all goes up in smoke. And so I have two like you know would you rather's for you. Oh, awesome. Okay. All right. <laughs> so the the first one, what's worse, somebody FaceTiming in public without headphones in, or not re-racking their weights in the gym. Uh. Probably the FaceTiming, honestly. Dude, it's so <laughs> terrible. It's so, especially if somebody's in like a fight, like an argument or whatever, it just makes me feel wildly uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> but at least, but at least then, I guess, I guess the benefit is that you you're getting both sides of the argument rather to the than extent just, you care. Which yeah, is yeah, yeah. Zero. I just don't want to hear it. Yeah, I just don't want to hear. It. I'm like, hey man, put your headphones in. Also, stop talking so loudly. This is terrible. <laughs> but but re not re wrecking your weights is just a pet peeve. I'm like, oh, you're so strong. You're just so strong and so fit. You don't feel it necessary to re-rack your weights. Come on, guys. Yeah, do a solid and do it correctly. Like if, you know, if you happen to be taking off a bunch of 45s and there's like a 25 in the wrong place or just fix the whole thing, you know, leave it, leave it better than you found it. That's my, that's my rant. Uh, a good right. citizen. Yeah, that's right. Get, yeah, great gym etiquette. Uh, all right. Second, would you rather, or it's maybe just a what's worse, right? So what's, what's worse? Dropping the bar from the top of the deadlift or not putting away your grocery cart? The cart. I mean, yes, obviously it's the <laughs> cart can cause way more damage is also very annoying, but I feel like it's the same energy. It's just like, eh, I don't have to do this. <laughs> just, it, I, I've seen it in the gym a lot recently. People just full just drop the weight from the top. And it, well, I guess the question or the, the, the point for clarification here is that you, I, I assume you are referring to people who are, who are lifting with like steel or iron plates. Correct. And, yes. And dropping that, which is not great for the bar, particularly, well, with really, there are probably different mechanisms of damage to the bar, depending on the weight, like 135 or whatever versus, you know, 700 dropping those with iron plates and things like that. Not, not great for the bar. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's how you get a bent barbell. And then people who are lifting very heavy weights get annoyed because the bar is bent. That seems to be me. <laughs> um, yeah. Also just very loud. And I'm like, why though? If Benny, Benny, Benedict Magnuson, 10, 15, thousand fifteen, <laughs> and he set it down and you barely hear him set the weight down. It's just full control. Um, so yeah, just don't, don't drop the bar. The deadlifts and people were responding like, well, what if it, there's a, they're on a platform? I'm like, the platform is not saving the bar and the steel plates or whatever. You're just not damaging the floor. You're damaging the platform. If it's made out of, if there's wood underneath the rubber, for example, how do you think you get those troughs? <laughs> you right, know, where, where the, the bar, bar kind of settles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if you're on like a concrete floor, you, know, you don't think you can break the concrete? <laughs> Come on, guys. Yeah, but really it's just for for the barbell. If you have bumpers and you drop it, you know, whatever. I yes, I'm less concerned, but still, just chill out, guys. Just set the set the bar down. Um yeah, the last tweet I had that I got had some f- negative feedback from was I I wrote that uh a calorie, you know, if somebody says a calorie is not a calorie, then you just ignore everything they have to say subsequent to that (laughs) because a calorie is just a unit of measurement, right? So it's like, it'd be similar to saying like a minute isn't a minute or a mile isn't a mile. And it's like, I think if you have an additional claim, like eating a particular dietary pattern that within equivalent energy uh, content produces a different outcome than another dietary pattern, we'll make that claim and then provide the supporting evidence. But that's right. a far um, more interesting statement than a calorie isn't a calorie. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, a mile of walking is not the same as a mile of driving. It's like, yeah, we know. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Mind blown. So anyway, if you're on Twitter, Austin doesn't actually tweet that much uh, unless somebody tags him in something that he feels like he can respond uh, to or wants to respond to. But uh, Which are few. Yeah. yeah. Which are few. I, I, I use Twitter almost exclusively as a personal bookmarking service for interesting things that I want to read. That's what yeah. I retweet. <laughs> you, you know what would be helpful? Like, so if people started following you on Twitter, if you started liking those, uh, you know, posts like the, oh, they shared a, a study or a paper or uh-huh. whatever, or interpretation of a paper and you liked them, then people would get fed via the algorithm to your liked posts. So maybe we could encourage you, nudge you to, in addition to bookmarking them, no, I don't. I I, I don't uh, use the bookmark feature. I use retweets as a bookmark feature. So yeah. So there you go. They so any, anything you. on my feed is the stuff that I'm reading. Yeah. Yes. To the extent right. that anybody is interested. Perfect. Uh, as far as future podcasts, hey guys, if you have questions that you want us to address, or you got some uh, other things you feel like we haven't handled, uh, send us send us a, uh, an email at media barbellmedicine.com. Also, we're getting back into the vlogging stuff on YouTube. So if you have a form check. Uh, send us a video, mediabarbellmedicine.com. Do it in landscape so they'll you know, turn your phone sideways so it's long ways. And send us a whole set of an exercise that you're doing. Uh, we're still not doing swimming form checks. They'll still <laughs> somebody just, asked. But. Uh, yeah, somebody asked. But yeah, we'll, we'll t- table that till maybe 2024. But yeah, uh, looking forward to seeing your form checks, seeing your questions. Get some feedback, mediabarbellmedicine.com. Uh, upcoming podcasts include, we're going to talk about uh, cardiovascular considerations uh, in exercise, and we will particularly address sudden cardiac death, uh, given the recent issue uh, that was seen in, in the Monday night uh, NFL. Matt, was it, was it Monday night football? I think it was. I wasn't Sunday watching night? the game. I don't know. You were- <laughs> <laughs> Go sports. Um, but yeah, Damar Hamlin, um, you know, collapsed on the field or whatever after a hit and then um, had to get CPR on the field. And yeah, so figured we would address that. Uh, similar to our pre-podcast discussion, I'm not confident in like ascribing a particular diagnosis to that. I have no, you know, immediate knowledge of exactly what happened, his workup and whatnot. But uh figured we'd talk about that because yeah, it is there's time. a long list of there's a long list of causes for that kind of thing. And and contrary to the immediate uh post event uh social media storm uh that 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 came up, um athletes uh collapsing or athletes dying in Act, you know, during their sport is not a new thing. Yeah. Uh, that that was a, a, of course, an expected. I think as soon as it happened, and and you know, you pinged me, and I told you, here it comes. Yeah, yeah. People, are uh, everybody's playing. like, oh, this is a whole new thing. This didn't happen before, you know, twenty twenty or whatever. Uh, but uh, indeed, it has for a very long time. Um, you can, I'm sure, you can recall even, you know, practice board test questions in in you know med school of. 
you know, some, some teenage basketball player who collapses during a game and has, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or some channelopathy or something like that. And so there's a long list of potential causes for this kind of thing many of which can be detected with pre-participation screening, but not all of them can. And some of them are only, you know, uh, unmasked or revealed or inducible with activity. And so like, if you just get a screening test at rest, it may not actually reveal it. So it's a whole complicated field, but it sounds like we're going to be talking about it soon. Yeah. In particular, the screening recommendations and why they are what they are, but this is a very controversial uh, topic within sports medicine, like, do you mm-hmm. screen? Should you screen? And if you are screening, like how should it be done to actually prevent sudden cardiac death? Yeah. Because if you identify a hundred thousand people who have this potential anomaly and only a handful of them would go on to actually have a problem, that's not a very effective screening tool. And perhaps a more useful policy would be to have trained professionals on the sideline, able to render care, um, in the event that one of these things that maybe doesn't show up necessarily so well on screening, um, reliably uh, is actually dealt with. So in any case, yeah. that'll probably be next week's uh, podcast, just given the timeliness of this. And uh, But yeah, curious to hear what people uh, suggest and send us an email. It's media at barbellmedicine.com. All right, a little training update. I think we, we could just dub this the back pain boys. <laughs> just <laughs> like, what the heck? I, yeah, I remember I texted you, it might've been Saturday or Sunday, and I was like, all right, just walking around with the seven out of 10 <laughs> low back pain, gait speed reduced by half, yeah. love my life. Uh, and you were like, anything that you attribute this to? And I was like, thinking, I was like, no, man, I had like a banner training week, just as far as where uh, numbers I'd been hitting. I squatted 585 and pulled 635 for a set of five and everything was fine. The only thing I can possibly think is that I did bump up my conditioning volume by about 15%. Um, But I planned on doing that and I had no like acute symptoms. I literally, I was practicing uh, at the motocross track and I was putting on my left boot and I was like, ow, my my low back kind of hurts. I was still able to ride that day or whatever. And I've still been able to train and whatnot, but it's just like, it's just annoying. I'm like, what the heck? Why? But you know, I don't really have a great reason. I didn't freak out. I'm just kind of, all right, it'll go away and uh, training as tolerated. So, and you've had the same thing. You texted me. I think you said, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I was, I was feeling fine. And then on Monday I paused I paused front squatted, nothing crazy, like 120 kilos for a set of 10 or something like that. And then like within 20 minutes afterwards, it was quite uncomfortable. Didn't really do anything quote unquote wrong. Um, and so, yeah, just did not, not feel awesome that night. But the next day I, you know, was periodically going out and doing some, you know, uh, empty bar stuff, uh, walked almost 10,000 steps that day, did a light training session of, of other tolerable things. And then it's probably... 50 to 70% better today. And then we'll see how it gets by the end of the week. Yeah. Yeah. We're just going through it. You know, what's interesting is that other people in this space tend to not really talk about the injuries that they're dealing with that often. And I think it's almost like a, it it is either uh, like obscuring the fact that they're dealing regularly with injuries because it does happen, um, you know, because they don't want to be like, oh, I'm injured again. It's like, this is a life experience. Like it just, it happens, you know, Eh, but we'll talk about it. Uh, In any case, other announcements before we pop into this week's podcast, new merch available over the brand new barbellmedicine.com website. So you get the Barbell Medicine Lifting Club stuff. We got our comic book tees. We got our banners uh, available, flags available. So all that stuff is there linked in the description below. And then as always, we have our live in-person seminars upcoming, Uh, brand new pain and rehab seminar is going to be Miami end of this month. I think there's two spots left. So as of this recording, and then uh, we have our uh, two-day health and performance seminars coming up in February. We'll be in Atlanta and in May we'll be in New York with future dates to come. So if you're interested in hanging out with us uh, for one of our live in-person events, head over to the website. Again, it's linked in the description below. Uh, and yeah, let's pop in to this week's podcast. This is episode 207 presented to you by Pioneer Belts. This is our January research review. So Austin and I share with each other multiple studies that come up that are interesting or or provocative, or in this case, provide answers to questions that we've had. And we bat them around and uh, yeah, we do podcasts about them uh, pretty regularly. So the first paper, we have three papers this this week. The first one 
is titled Adherence to Aerobic and Muscle Strengthening Activity Guidelines, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of 3.3 Million Participants Across 32 Countries. This is uh, published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, December 2022. And the research group is out of Spain with the lead author being Garcia Hermoso. And again, we'll link all this in the description below. So before, you know, and you said this in our pre-recording kind of banter, you were like, yeah, adherence to exercise is bad. We knew that. That is true. But prior to this publication, we really didn't have good data on how many individuals globally were meeting the current physical activity guidelines uh, with both the conditioning and resistance training, or as they call it in this paper, muscle strengthening activity uh, sort of minimums. And so the current guidelines have been around since 1995, although when they were published in 95, it was just the aerobic conditioning component. Um, and then in 2007, uh, they were updated to include resistance training. So they've been around for quite some time. So, you know, almost you know, 15 years at this point. Um, but the actual data sets that we've had on how many people are actually meeting these things were really limited only to aerobic training, aerobic conditioning, and none of them were actually assessing, well, how many people are actually lifting weights to, um, so all the previous estimates we you know that we would talk about were basically, uh, just about aerobic conditioning. So the current estimates were that 25 to 30% of adults, uh, were hitting the current, um, uh, conditioning guidelines. That's effectively, uh, what the data had said. Uh, which means that, you know, nearly 80% or 75% of adults were not meeting the guidelines. Uh, but again, this did not take into consideration resistance training. This is probably, I don't know if you would agree with this. You think that's an underestimate of how many people are actually doing this? Yeah. I think most of these data that we get a lot of the time end up being underestimates on these topics. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it is because it's just self-reported, right? Yep. You, you would just ask people like, oh, how many minutes a week are you exercising? Or how many times do you exercise and approximately for how long? And people tend to just overestimate what they're doing. Analogous uh, to uh, how many calories are you eating a day? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, and then when surveyed directly for both, uh, you know, resistance training and the conditioning guidelines, about 16% uh, of adults globally would self-report that they're hitting guidelines. So we want folks to hit both because there are unique adaptations, unique health benefits, unique performance benefits um, from both. Um, and so it's not like, should I do conditioning or should I do resistance training? You should do both. So this paper basically looked at how many people over 32 countries with 3.3 million participants, you know, were actually hitting both the resistance training and conditioning guidelines. So in this study, they took 21 separate studies. This is a study of studies, a meta-analysis. Um, there were, three, again, 3.3 million subjects, about half were women. Age ranged from 12 to 95, which when I read that, I was like, who is a nonagenarian? Non <laughs> Who's killing it? <laughs> killing it. Um, <laughs> the other interesting point was there was no data for you know, the youth, 5 to 11 years old. So really hard to kind of get a sense for what the what younger the younger population is doing but so this age range was just restricted to 12 to 95 years of age again 32 countries and this is all self-reported data although one of the 21 studies directly measured aerobic activity using an accelerometer um, so basically they, they'd either wear like a fitbit or some other sort of um, tracker that would basically say oh you're moving this much on average so the results of this study for adults adherence to both the aerobic conditioning component and the resistance training component was about 17.1%. And then for adolescents age 12 to 17, the adherence was 19.7%. In general, it was higher in men than women, higher in individuals aged 18 to 64 versus those who are over the age of 65. It's also higher uh, for adherence in normal weight individuals uh, based on BMI compared to those who are underweight, overweight, or with obesity. Uh, also higher in folks with higher education compared to those with lower education. It was also higher in non or former smokers rather than current smokers and higher in those who are reporting good health versus poor health. And I think a lot of those things, those characteristics probably reflect or probably um, pan out to have been in in, uh, present in individuals with higher levels of self-efficacy. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that we've actually done a research review. This was probably like, I don't know, several years ago, a paper by Rhodes. I think it might have been in 2017 that looked at barriers, particularly to resistance training, you know, uptake and, and uh, activity. And um, it per, uh, uh, individual self-efficacy was one of the stronger kind of uh, influencers there. I think that over the, the overarching thing, in addition to variables like, you know, individual self-efficacy is uh, all these quote unquote social determinants of health and things like that, that have massive impacts on all sorts of health outcomes and, and play, I think, a continued underappreciated role in things like physical activity uptake and, and participation. These, these social factors are enormous. Yep, I agree. Um, so the take home for me is that, you know, if you, if prior to this paper, if you were trying to use data to kind of figure out how many people were actually hitting the guidelines, you would come up with ranges uh, of adherence going from like 25 to 30% um, of people uh, that were, you know, hitting, hitting the guidelines up, all the way up to like 50%, 40 to 50% in the United States. In fact, if you go to the CDC, like fast facts uh, sheet on physical activity, they'll say, oh yeah, 40 to 50% of adults report meeting the current guidelines. And that's again, only for aerobic, the aerobic training, but it is really much lower than that. 17% or so for adults and about 19% for adolescents. Um, so that was a unique finding. It's much lower. And I still think that is an overestimate Yeah, because again, it's self-reported rather than like, Hey, we actually tracked people, but that raises an interesting question. Like how would you objectively track people participating in resistance training. It That's the harder one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the accelerometer stuff is fine for, you know, moving around kind of quote unquote aerobic, be it low, moderate or, or, or high intensity. But um, because resistance training can look so different for different people, um, even even more so than, than you know, uh, aerobic activity in terms of just like a couple different basic modalities, be it like walking, biking, swimming, whatever. But strength training can look so, so, so heterogeneous bet between the kind of loading that you're using, whether there's any loading, if you're considering like body weight stuff or not, or the volume, the intensity, all this other kind of uh, variables that are that you can't like slap a watch on and, and quantify all that or, or proxy a heart rate response for that kind of thing. So it's, it's definitely trickier to uh, measure scientifically. Yeah, I think we'll get there'll be some sort of uh, technological development where you'll be able to sort of detect when people are lifting weights. Um, and the reason I say that is there's there's stuff even now, uh, particularly in the diabetes space, where they can via a, some wearable tech, they determine they can predict when you're actually eating. And it'll like prompt you to like calculate your the carbohydrates in the meal so that they can figure out the insulin dose, for example. And it's like, there's got to be something that's like unique to resistance training. Like they can detect you loading plates or whatever and then yeah. like lifting them. I don't know. So we'll see. So maybe that'll come up and we'll be able to objectively measure participation resistance training. So that was one highlight for me in addition to like the lowered adherence rate, which again is now reflected in the literature before we were just kind of guessing at it. And then also sort of uh, the differences in countrywide like adherence. So USA has one of the lowest participations globally, whereas Denmark, Netherlands, Iceland, and Sweden are among the highest. And the biggest differences in those countries, in addition to obviously to different cultural norms and, and, you know, access and whatnot, is like the public health campaigning that they've done in those countries compared to the United States. So not only did those uh, those countries have like stated goals where they want, okay, we want 75% of our population to adhere to the current guidelines. Um, they also uh, clearly spent a bunch of money and devoted a bunch of resources among government agencies, private agencies, companies, uh, et cetera, to like make this a thing, you know, and we just don't do that in the United States. In fact, when I think about like public health campaigns for physical activity in the United States, I'm like, what are they? Where are they? And like, why are they not as readily known? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think there's probably more to it than just uh, be it like a marketing campaign for physical activity mm -hmm. or something. But if you think about those same kind of like social determinants, social variables, socioeconomic stuff, access, all those other kind of things, uh, if you compare that between the US and say some of those, uh, you know, European countries, particularly these, you know, like social democracies, as, as they term themselves, I think um, it's, it's radically different. And, and yeah. that uh, has, you know, downstream consequences. Yeah, I think I think yeah, having access and like uh, in addition to so increasing access to places where people can exercise, in in addition to providing resources so people feel uh, confident in doing it, and then also promoting it. So yeah, not just a marketing campaign, but definitely uh, like a multi pronged 
interdisciplinary approach to getting people. Yeah. People, people have some degree of socioeconomic security. They don't have to work, you know, three jobs to pay for childcare to like, you know, all this other kind of stuff that hamstrings a lot of folks in, in the U S I like, I like that pun hamstring. Okay. And then, uh, you also public, uh, posted this, uh, Lancet 2021 series on physical activity. Did you, did you go through that? Yeah. So, so the Lancet is obviously one of the, the bigger, uh, journals out there and they do periodically, they do, um, kind of themed, uh, issues. And so one that people may have heard us reference frequently is their 2018 series on low back pain. Uh, and so they have many other ones um, that they, you know, pick a major, you know, a, a topic of, you know, major global significance, and they'll do a whole themed issue, a whole series on that. And so in 2021, they actually did one on physical activity um, that has a bunch of interesting kind of sub sections, one on adolescent physical activity behaviors, um, uh, uh, kind of singling that side of things out. Another, which is really, I would say, under discussed is physical activity among people living with various forms of disability. Um, there's almost no conversation <laughs> around that because, you know, that's obviously going to be a pretty major uh, variable in somebody's ability to adhere to these guidelines is if they uh, have some form of disability and, and how that can be, um, you know, addressed in an individualized fashion. The impact of urban infrastructure on physical activity. So kind of like what we've been talking about in terms of access and, and what they have available to you if you live in like a hyper developed urbanized environment might be pretty limited. And then an interesting one on the impact of the uh, Olympic Games and how that ends up impacting population physical activity levels. I think we all know somebody, I've, I've known tons of people who are like, oh yeah, I watched you know, the Olympics this year and, and it motivated me to get, get in the pool and try swimming out or, or whatever the case is. Um, and so, so that impact also, so interesting reading for folks. Do you recall, we'll link that in the description below, but do you recall what the effect was of hosting the Olympic Games on nationwide physical activity was? I and, don't recall, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I just my my skeptical brain is is like saying, oh, there's probably no effect, or maybe even a negative effect, just <laughs> just just because like a lot of the things you expect from the Olympics, like oh, the country's you know uh, revenue stream is going to increase during the Olympics, uh, tends to not be the case, and so I do wonder if like hosting the Olympic Games actually moves the needle one way or the other. But uh, yeah, so we'll link. This paper, um, in addition to the uh, brand new 2022 paper from the British Journal of Sports Medicine, it's all in the description below. Again, this is episode 207 or January Research Review here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast presented by Pioneer Belts with Dr. Austin Baraki. Moving on to the second paper. Um, and again, I wanted to pick this because hey, it's new year, new me. So let's talk about factors that influence adherence to physical activity. So this paper was titled Identifying Predictors of Adherence to the Physical Activity Goal, a Secondary Analysis of the Smarter Weight Loss Trial. So this was done by Bizanova et al. from the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health. And it was published in the 2022 American College of Sports Medicine Journal uh, that's titled Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise. So background on this. Uh, effectively, we're trying to look at how to promote physical activity, um, particularly in individuals with obesity. And we can look at correlations between baseline uh, participant characteristics and other predictors that uh, associate with their adherence to a physical activity intervention. Um, the cost of obesity is very expensive. Uh, in the United States, it's projected to be $173 billion per year. And so we know that if we increase physical activity, that we can not only reduce costs, but also improve health trajectory, improve um, all sorts of uh, good things, quality of life included. Uh, and then the previous paper we just discussed suggested that the adherence to physical activity is much lower than we thought. So again, 17% or so in adults and about 19% in adolescents. Uh, okay. And so what they did here, this was a 12 month weight loss trial. They had 502 adults with overweight or obesity. 80% were women. 83% were white. The average age was 45 and the average BMI was 33.7. Um, so exclusion criteria. So people could not enroll in the study if they were on a medically prescribed diet, they were either currently pregnant or planned to become pregnant. They had a serious mental illness. They consumed more than greater than four, uh, alcoholic beverages per day. Uh, they were enrolled in another weight loss program. were taking a weight loss medication. They had a history of bariatric surgery, or if they had an eating disorder, all of those were exclusion criteria. So they basically split these folks into two different groups. One was self-monitoring alone. So basically they were prescribed physical activity intervention and were said, Hey, you just 
monitor this thing on your own, or they uh, were using self-monitoring um, and they got feedback through an app. Um, so it's the smarter app that they were using for this particular trial. They got up to three separate feedback messages per day with the app. The app basically sent a prompt to the participant randomly during the day. And if the participant opened the prompt within one hour, they got a tailored self-monitoring message. Uh, usually they had uh, physical activity addressed once every other day. The diet was addressed daily and their weight body weight was addressed weekly. So these were all, it was like an AI type thing. They were basically trying to figure out, hey, if you open the, the, the prompt, like let's send you different messages based on uh, who you are as a, per as a person. Uh, okay, other facets of this study. So the physical activity intervention that was uh, most prescribed was walking. They basically uh, wanted to start all of these individuals with walking at 150 minutes per week. And they did that for about three months, so up to week 12. And then every one to two weeks after that, they added 10 minutes to that total up until week 42, uh, where they would hopefully be uh, walking for 300 minutes uh, per week total or more. Um, they all got a, a counseling session one-on-one uh, -on -one with a registered dietitian for behavioral counseling on weight loss. The primary outcome that was measured was aerobic conditioning. So did they get greater than 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity? That's the uh, uh, minimum current uh, guideline for aerobic conditioning. And they measured that via a Fitbit. So some wearable tech was involved here to basically track how well people were doing this. Uh, and they were considered to be adherent in using the tracker. Uh, so this Fitbit, if they took more than 500 steps per day, if their steps were lower than that, they were basically, the researchers figured, hey, you actually weren't wearing the Fitbit, so can't really use your data. The weight adherence, uh, they were considered to be adherent to that if they actually logged their weight daily. Um, and they were considered adherent to the diet if they recorded greater than 50% of their daily calorie goal in the Fitbit app. Um, they also assessed other things like self-efficacy, depression, BMI, and a host of other factors that we'll get to. So what did they find? Overall, two-thirds of the sample, so 334 of the sample, met the physical activity goal for the first week. Um, and interestingly, like half the sample was participating this, in this trial during COVID-19. So that's actually pretty impressive that during a worldwide pandemic that this amount of people were still able to meet the physical activity goals. Uh, as far as predictors of who was likely to stay adherent uh, or become adherent to the physical activity goal, they were more likely to be male. They were more likely to open the prompts on their phone. They were also more likely to have a higher exercise self-efficacy at baseline, which was measured by current like you know exercise uh, participation. Uh, they had higher adherence to the guidelines for the first week. Um, they had greater weight loss uh, at week four and at uh, 12 months, and they were less likely to have mental health problems. So all of those things seemed to, to predict adherence at the 12-month mark. Uh, and interesting thing about this, the higher adherence at week one, that was interesting to me because it's like you hear a lot uh, of people recommending, oh, we'll just start, just do something, you know, and like you can chip away and add to that. And I'm certainly a fan of people doing something over nothing, but I, I I don't recall uh, making a big push towards uh, for folks to actually like, hey, do all of the stuff on week one, like really do your best. Um, and, and I think you could look at this one of two ways. You can look at the people who have higher adherence on week one, like, like if you're already doing the physical activity and so therefore you have higher adherence on week one, you're more likely to be adherent at 12 months. So that's like one way to look at it. Like, yeah, if you're already doing it, you're going to likely keep doing it. Or you could look at it uh, that, you know, during week one, people are maybe leveraging some initial motivation they're doing, they're enrolled in a study, they're getting all this outside support. Um, and so during that week where they can, you know, leverage, uh, that additional motivation, maybe they can make environmental changes, habit changes, et cetera, that they can kind of pull from, draw from for a considerable period of time, rather than like running out of motivation. And then at that point they're like, well, my default behavior it hasn't really changed. And so two different ways to look at it. I tend to favor the latter. It's like, yeah, let's let, Hey, let's leverage this additional motivation. I kind of mentioned that in the last podcast. Like, yeah, if you've got, you know, a week or two where you can really go to the well frequently and, and pull from motivation, um, do the hard things and set yourself up for success long-term by changing your environment, gathering some additional skills, whether it be food prep, meal, meal prep, shopping for health promoting, uh, foods, this, that, and the other, uh, setting your, you know, uh, uh, your life up. So you're going to go to the gym regularly, things of that nature. That's the way I tend to look at it. Um, 
in any case, did the app actually work? And it seems like it actually helped. So at week one, there were similar adherence between groups uh, on week one. But at 12 months, the uh, people who were doing self-monitoring plus using the app had a much higher uh, adherence rate. And so they were doing way more activity, about 165% of the uh, guideline minimums. So they were well over uh, 150 minutes per week, whereas the people just doing self-monitoring were barely getting 150 minutes per week. And that kind of makes sense to me. Additional support seems to predict uh, uh, additional benefit, additional adherence there. Um, So I don't know. This this study to me, basically, uh, I take home a few things. One, Additional support being beneficial. I don't think that's controversial at all. Um, The other thing that is more interesting to me is like, hey, let's maybe push a little harder for people to do the thing they're trying to do on week one rather than kind of easing into it. Like, let's let's really try to leverage some of that additional motivation for behavioral change and, uh, you know, figure out some additional tools, strategies, resources, et cetera, that you can leverage later on um, so that at a year, things are much, much different. as far as things I didn't like about this study, again, like no resistance training, really? Come on, guys. Uh, and again, that probably goes back to like, how would you measure that? And so the researchers were like, yeah, I don't know, we're just not going to do that, which is probably why, you know, again, in, in a lot of these studies in exercise science, they'll use like a chest press machine rather than like bench press. It's just easier to, to do just it. Pragmatic, prag- more pragmatic designs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, they also, again, at, the, at uh, what I w- would have liked to see seen is at 12 months, like how many of the folks actually got up to the 300 minutes per week comparatively, but they didn't measure that. Even though that was part of the study design, they did not actually measure that. And I'm like, because there does seem to be additional benefit when people are doing more exercise. And so uh, there's a few data sets that seem to point to, yeah, you can get health benefits by just hitting the minimum, that 150 minutes per week, but likely improved benefit on weight loss and weight maintenance once you get up closer to the 300 minutes per week. And so again, there's this dose-dependent relationship between exercise volume and sort of health benefit in addition to performance benefit potentially. So I would have liked to see like, hey, did this app actually get people closer or uh, more frequently to that 300 minutes per week or even above? But uh, they didn't report that. So uh, un unusual, um, and unfortunate. Uh, but yeah, the, um, the average percentage of uh, physical activity goal adherence did not really change over the year that they studied these folks from the first week. And again, that just goes back to that, maybe the importance of the first week where it's like, man, let's just really throw everything we have and get people on the right track initially. And that likely sets them up for success better on, uh, any, any input on that, uh, Dr. Baraki? Yeah, uh, I think that there's a few similar considerations here to what I mentioned previously. I think that the the overarching, you know, environment in the background of all these social determinants is going to be huge as far as how can this kind of a study, how can these conclusions be taken to the general population, to people who are not enrolled in a study and getting all of that support necessarily, a huge an underappreciated impact on that is going to come from these social determinants, be it socioeconomic situation, you know, psychiatric situations, uh, among many others. So that's one big thing that may or may not be modifiable uh, very easily by the individual. Um, and so as we've talked about, say, in our top you know, podcast on obesity and talking about the food environment, and it's like, this is going to pretty much require like policy changes to facilitate this kind of thing. And that's kind of what we're talking about with, you know, other countries and, you know, in Europe and things like that, that may have a different, you know, uh, built environment that may facilitate exercise adherence in the general population a little bit more favorably compared to like, say, hyper urbanized environments in the, in the U.S. And so how this kind of study can be generalized. Uh, not just outside of its study to the U.S. population, say, in general, but even to the U.S. population in different social environments, uh, in different, you know, geographies, in different socioeconomic strata, like it effectively is not that generalizable to all of those different contexts. Um, so so, so that's, uh, that's, I think, a big one. And then the other one that's interesting to think about is just like, you know, all these variables that predicted, you know, better outcomes, how many of those are, are causal in the direction that we would like them to be versus like a, you know, kind of selection in, in the other direction that people who are willing to, in, you know, do all the things up front are going to be more likely to, you know, be able to stick to it longer term. And so that raises the question of when we're working with people and trying to, you know, um, you know, uh, generate some, some behavior change, um, the idea of let's get them doing everything up front is, is certainly attractive. I think an, an, a, an alternative hypothesis could be that uh, 
it that there's a degree of individualization that may be beneficial. And and again, that's a hypothesis. As far as we've talked about before, like single behavior change versus multiple behavior change, there are going to be people who have different access, different resources, different skill sets, different levels of self-efficacy, different socioeconomic situations, et cetera. And then perhaps for some people, they are more favorably set up to do all the things up front. And then other people, uh, not so much. And, and throwing everything at them may be more demotivating <laughs> than it may be helpful. It's just a, it's just another kind of a hypothesis, I suppose. Yeah. I, I do wonder, it's like, if, if you can't get somebody to do all of the things that you want them to do, you know, or that are part of the intervention on week one, then maybe that suggests you're actually missing some barrier or obstacle uh, for them to change their behavior. And if you do not remedy that, then you're basically setting them up, you know, you're up a Creek without a paddle. (laughs) You're like, it's analogous. It's analogous to, you know, in the obesity management space, just telling people calorie deficit harder, right? It's like, (sighs) that is not the strategy and there is no, you know, uh, uh, experimental design or trial that has shown effectiveness in that kind of an approach, just telling people, Hey, have you considered eating less or something like that? Because (laughs) we talked about this recently, there's this new 60 minutes episode that came out on obesity and the medications and all that stuff. And just reading the comments and replies to this was infuriating. I had to, I had to escape (laughs) because of how many people were like, nobody needs help with any of this. It's just, you need to eat less and and, and move more and things like that. And it's like, well, if that is the advice, there is going to be a fraction of people for whom that is a feasible strategy in their current life context where they're like, oh uh, yeah, I can make this behavior change. Now I have the resources, skills, confidence. I know how to do this and, and I can adhere to it. That is a small fraction of the population where there are others who have, you know, all sorts of different barriers to that. And our goal should not be to just tell them you just need to do this harder, but rather figure out what is the barrier that we are dealing with and how can we best remedy that for the individual. And and for some people, um, that is going to involve biological variables that are outside of their control. And so that's how we end up with a medicine that it's like I've had patients who are, you know, been struggling with obesity for decades, start them on this thing and they're like, oh my God, this is like I feel like a different person. I feel normal yep. now. I can do this without thinking about it. This is easy yep. to adhere to. And it's like, that is what we're aiming for. I'd rather, I care about the outcome, getting people yep. there <laughs> rather than the the methods. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the practical take on, we are in the first week of 2023 and a lot of people are trying to engage in some sort of behavioral change. And so if you are, you know, soaring high during this week one, Hey, congratulations, try to identify the skills uh, resources and, and whatever else you're drawing from so that you can rely on that stuff later on and, and, you know, turn that up to 11. If on the other hand, you're struggling a little bit, which is, look, we expect a, uh, large proportion of folks who are trying to, you know, in, increase their physical activity participation or change their dietary pattern to not be able to do this automatically, because if you were able to do it <laughs> automatically, you would, have done it. <laughs> you would have done it. And so if this first week is not going great for you, I think that represents, um, some challenges and obstacles, barriers to changing your behavior. And those things need to be addressed in the most efficient way, uh, possible. And so it's not just try harder or, you know, motivate yourself more or, you know, anything like that. It's, it's, it probably requires additional analysis for like, well, why, why is this, um, so challenging and, and and what can we do about it? And that's again, not the, what we do about it is likely not going to be try harder. Yeah. (laughs) If it, if it was, uh, and that reliably worked, we'd be in a much different place as a society. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last paper here on episode 207, our January 2023 research review presented by Pioneer Belts with Dr. Austin Baraki. This is, I love this paper. I loved it. Does stretching, uh, does stretching influence muscular strength? A systematic review with meta-analysis and meta-regression. This is by Thomas et al. It's published in the December 2022 uh, journal edition of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. You know how much I love stretching, talking about stretching, telling people not to stretch. (laughs) Can't get enough of it. (laughs) Can't get enough of it. Okay. So the background here, many claim that stretching in programs uh, improves the tolerance to various ranges of motion, improves performance, reduces the risk of injury and soreness, among other things. Uh, However, the data currently does not suggest that acute, so short-term or chronic, long-term bouts of stretching reduces the risk of injury and or soreness. I feel pretty confident in saying that just based on the available data. um, It just, look, if you're stretching because you don't want to become injured or don't want to become sore, it actually looks like, if anything, there may be 
the opposite relationship because you can be get injured from stretching and stretching can actually increase soreness. It doesn't seem to do much to reduce either of those things. Um, similarly, the data does not really show a strength performance benefit, um, whether you're doing acute stretching before or after lifting. In fact, it seems to, if anything, decrease strength performance when done in the short term before resistance training. There may be some impact on muscle cross-sectional area in untrained individuals when they stretch between sets. There's a few studies showing that. But as we previously discussed, I think it was on podcast 205 when we were talking about hypertrophy mechanisms and whatnot. Uh, that's probably limited to folks who don't actually lift or had not lifted before. It's like folks, you know, folks to whom that re represents a stimulus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've basically stretched the muscle under some sort of load, whether it's just body weight or positional yeah. or whatever. And it's like, ah, the muscle goes, I need to do something about this. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, probably not a long-term strategy for getting as yoked as humanly possible. Uh, what we don't know and what hasn't really been studied in a large uh, way uh, was that what about stretching for long periods of time? Not necessarily like a single session, but like over weeks and weeks and weeks. Is there a demonstrable benefit in like strength performance? For example, there was a previous meta-analysis that was published about five years ago in 2017. It looked at the effects of chronic stretching on functional tasks, isometric and isotonic force production, jumping and running tests, but they actually couldn't do the meta-analysis because the studies were too different mm -hmm. to actually compare to each other. They were like, well, this is an apple and this is an orange. And I don't really know how to make sense of this. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, since, uh, 2017, a bunch of studies, um, have been published, uh, that address chronic stretching's impact on strength outcomes. So let's see what happens when we combine all those studies results and, uh, get, we can get to the bottom of what is the effect of chronic stretching on strength performance. So in this study, all of the studies included, uh, were at least four weeks in length and done in healthy individuals. The average, uh, length was about eight weeks. Um, for the study, uh, the average amount of stretching was four sets of stretching for one minute per set. Uh, and they did about 13 minutes of stretching per week. There was 35 total studies included. 21 of the studies just uh, looked at the effect of stretching on strength. There was not a control. Um, 12 studies uh, basically did have a control group. One group did stretching plus lifting and the other group just did lifting alone. And then there were two studies that basically did both. They looked at just uh, stretching of uh, stretching's effect on strength. And then they also compared it um, to a non-stretching control who also lifted weights. There was just over a thousand individuals uh, combined with all these 35 studies and the mean age was 24. Um, all studies applied stretching on the lower body, except for two, which also applied stretching to the shoulders along with the lumbar spine extensors. I guess they were just stretching their erectors. Can you think of a stretch? Like, how would you stretch your low back? You, like, uh, lie on your side and, like, twist? I would think of, like, an <laughs> aggressive forward flexed position, I think. Yeah, you could, like, like the like bending over, you know, touch, trying to touch your toes. Maybe more hamstrings than Ma anything else. Kind of maximally round. Yeah, or like a, like a sphinx pose, maybe, if you were, like, I don't know. I guess you'd be stretching your, <laughs> your trunk flexors. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, in any case, the most common modality or type of stretching that was used was static stretching. They also evaluated PNF stretching, which stands for proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitative stretching. That's the contract, relax type stretching. They also did ballistic and dynamic stretching in some of the studies. So what did this study find? So when they took individuals who stretched, Verse did absolutely nothing, so remained physically, uh, you know, insufficiently active. There was a small improvement in strength. The effect size uh, was 0.21. That suggests a small effect on stretching versus no physical activity on improving strength. Uh, but just by comparison, like the average effect size of a resistance training program on strength, the effect size is about seven times that of 1.4. Um, so that's a pretty small effect size um, with respect to strength improvement. But yeah, it makes sense to me that, you know, hey, if you do something versus nothing um, with respect to physical activity, your strength's likely to improve. And we see that same thing, a stretching's effect on muscle cross-sectional area. I'm not really concerned with that finding. The more interesting finding was when they compared lifting versus lifting plus stretching. So it looked like uh, that stretching exercises, adding them to a resistance training program did not improve any of the strength tests that they were uh, uh, measuring in these studies. There was a small negative effect on strength performance when people stretched before resistance training and really no effect on uh, strength perf performance when they, people were stretching uh, between sets. Uh, interestingly, the longer that people were stretching for, 
Sorry. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> I was say just 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 a caveat there um, that I that I wouldn't necessarily want. There there are some people who just generally enjoy the way stretching feels and doing feels that good, before man. they yeah doing that before they before they lift. And so you know when you when you talk about this you know potential negative impact on strength performance, I wouldn't necessarily want to scare them away from from doing that if that's nope. something they enjoy or they prefer, um, or thinking that like I can't put any tension on my muscles before I lift. Otherwise I'm going to do worse. Rather, it's like, I think that the negative effects um, that have been observed are, are a bit more pronounced with like pretty significant sustained, like most people are not holding stretches for like over a minute or, or sure. certainly like two minutes. And, and I think that that's where you start to see more of those effects, but like, you know, uh, pulling your quad or putting your arm behind your head or whatever for like five seconds or something to, you know, for people who feel stiff and it makes them feel good to do that. That's not the kind of stretch that I would uh, expect to have a significant impact on their their performance. So I don't really care about that compared to like very sustained, you know, end range stretches that are that are probably not really all that beneficial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's what they found in the meta regression. It's like the more stretching that people did, the more pronounced the effect seemed to be negatively when they were doing it before exercise, which makes sense to me. Not only is it fatiguing on some level, but just also if you're, uh, um, you know, reducing the muscles force production, either, whether it's via fatigue or just the actual stretch, the unique effects of the stretch itself, which is temporary, then yeah, your acute performance is going to go down. I don't necessarily care about your acute performance in the gym. Uh, but at the same time, if you did this over and over and over and over and over again for long periods of time, it does seem to maybe compromise. Yeah. How much weight can you lift when tested? Which, you know, if you're listening to the barbell medicine podcast, you may be concerned with. So uh, the other interesting finding here that I'm taking home is that most of the stretching that was done in these uh, uh, studies were non-specific stretching. So they did a lot of, uh, for example, uh, ankle stretching where they people were sitting on the ground and you either you know reach like grabbing their toes and pulling them back towards their shins, for example, to like stretch their calves, so to speak. And you're like, okay, but we're gonna like measure somebody's strength on a leg press or a squat or whatever. And it's like, okay, so just stretching your calf while sitting on the ground is not similar to the demands placed upon you on the leg press or the squat, not similar enough. And so my take home from that and something I've been saying for a while is that stretching like strength is specific. If you are trying to improve your tolerance of various ranges of motion that are specific uh, that, you know, for a particular task, the stretch needs to kind of look like that task. Like if you want to get better at squatting and you think mobility is compromising your ability to squat, well, I think that your stretching needs to look a lot like the squat. And that could be you hanging out at the bottom of a bodyweight squat prior to doing your, your sets of squats, for example, or, um, you know, holding on to the rack, uh, to take some load off so you can explore additional ranges of motion. All that stuff would be way more specific than doing like the couch stretch, for example, or like a kneeling, I don't even know the names of some of these things anymore. It's been so long, <laughs> but, but yeah. And, and the other take home was that the longer that people were stretching for and the more vol additional volume they had of stretching, the, the more significant impact it seemed to have negatively on their strength, uh, particularly if it's done before training. Um, and so I, yeah, I think the last thing, which wasn't really addressed in the study, but kind of what I'm taking from this is like, if you're spending all this time stretching, particularly before a workout, like that's compromising your resources that you have to train, not only from like an energy standpoint, fatigue standpoint, but also just like time. If you're like, I'm going to spend 20 minutes stretching before or after a workout. it's like, well, that's less time you can spend squatting, benching, pressing, deadlifting, doing conditioning or whatever. And it's like, if I had to predict who's going to have better strength performance, better muscle cross-section, you know, improvements in metal, muscle cross-sectional area, better improvement in VO2 max or whatever, it's going to be the person who's actually training more in general than the person who's stretching more. Does that, does that jive with your, your take on this? Yeah, I concur. I mean, I, I think that the, the, um, it, it is unlikely that spending that much time or more as some people do before a strength training session is going to substantially improve your import, your performance during that session to the extent you care about it compared with, um, as we typically do in our sessions, uh, more of a dynamic, uh, type warmup that mimics the activity that we're going to do. Even if you go and you squat an empty bar and we're doing like half squats at first, if it's like super cold and we're feeling super stiff, just doing like, you know, a common warmup when like I'm going out this afternoon and it's been quite cold here recently and I might do, you know, 
eight to 10 sets of two to three reps with the empty bar or something like that um, to, to get uh, fully warmed up in cold, cold, stiff conditions. Whereas when it's, you know, uh, when I'm, when I'm warm in the afternoon and it's a hot day or something, it may only take, you know, two empty bar sets or one or something like that. Um, that's more the way that I adjust my warm up to um, prepare for whatever I'm about to do compared with, um, you know, aggressive, uh, prolonged static stretching and things like that. Yeah, I'd rather have somebody do more sets, warm up sets of whatever task that they're about to do in the gym than do any sort of general stretching beforehand. Um, and then with respect to like stretching afterwards, I think I'd rather have you do some conditioning work or due to, you know, the non-zero energy and fatigue demands of stretching itself, I'd likely try to take your volume up a little bit of training if you need it, you know, other, otherwise, and if you don't need it, then I just, you don't need Move to train that much. Life. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. So, so I think my overall take home here is that, yeah, stretching can have a slightly negative effect if, do, if done before exercise. Uh, we also know that it certainly is not improving performance. It's not, uh, reducing the risk of injury. It's not necessarily reducing, uh, soreness experience, this, that, and the other. So it's not really, it's not really helping if it feels good. Like, Hey, don't, whatever, do, do your thing. Um, but, I, I think because it's not really providing a reliable benefit, um, the major issue here is just how much it, time it takes, you know? And so if you're spending, look, you want to spend five or 10 minutes stretching before you work out because it feels good and you don't believe like you need to do this or you're going to be broken, like, hey, stretch on my friend. But otherwise, if you're just like doing it because you think there's some sort of performance benefit or injury risk reduction benefit, eh, I, I, I probably just stop doing it. And just and and train more if if you need it, and if you don't need to train more, then yeah, like you said, move on with your life. Yeah, we have some pretty remarkable stories from our pain and rehab team of like the kinds of stretching routines and things like that that people either have bought into or been told that they need to do, either in the short term for rehab or like indefinitely for like quote unquote prehab to like reduce the risk of injury. People spending like hours per week doing these kinds of stretching routines and things like that, like every day sometimes multiple times a day. And it's like shocking how, <laughs> how much time um, these folks are, are, are spending doing this stuff that is substantially less beneficial um, to their training, their performance, uh, uh, not particularly impactful on their recovery. Um, and so we end up having to do a fair amount of work to try to challenge those beliefs in a way that is uh, uh, compassionate and generates the, the uh, result and the effect that, that we want to get them doing things that are probably have bigger effect sizes on their rehabilitation and, and pain recovery and performance and things like that. Yeah. I, when I think about like times that I would actually prescribe general stretching, so non-specific stretching, it would be in a situation where somebody cannot tolerate any type of graded exercise that I like that we have access to. Mm -hmm. So in an injury rehab situation, if they don't have access to a particular piece of machinery or we can't otherwise find an entry point, I'm like, all right, well maybe we can do these stretches to sort of get you moving, do something. And then and they have like contractures or something like that that need to be worked through or other anatomic barriers. Sure. Yeah. Post-op ranging, stuff like that. Sure. sure. Uh, but then in individuals who are like seeking an improvement in tolerance of a particular range of motion, I think a graded exposure to that is far more effective than general stretching. So the classic example would be like front squat. How do I front squat? I feel like I'm lacking wrist mobility or shoulder mobility or whatever. And it's like, okay, so how do we how can we back up, regress a little bit to a point, something you can do right now, and then, you know, gradually uh, go all the way to the full unrestricted movement, which is front squat with a secure and solid rack position. So maybe at this point you start with a talon grip and you're able to like get a, a front rack position, or you can hold on to straps, or you can do, uh, uh, you know, a lighter implement and hold that in a front rack position. All sorts of stuff like that would be fine, um, and all of them I think more effective than like. Yeah, I'm going to loop a band around the bottom of a rack and attach the other into my wrist and then I'm going to get on the ground and like do a four-way wrist stretch. It's like Yeah. That's not holding onto a barbell on top of your deltoids in an erect position. <laughs> yeah, and 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 both of us I think have have experienced this particularly with the example you use of like we both rarely front squat. I, you know, historically I would like, you know, train for a while, I might hit a new PR on my low bar squat or something. I'm like, I wonder what happened to my front squat and I'll just like send it for a day do <laughs> i think i've front squatted like i don't know 440 or something like that but leading you know leading up to that it is like profoundly uncomfortable and not a well tolerated position but even if i front squat again the next week it is already markedly better or if i front squat twice that week or within like 
two weeks, three weeks, the tolerance to that position improves a ton just from doing that and doing a bunch of sets with that without doing a ton of other things. Yep. Yeah. And in the interim, you weren't like, Ooh, I got a PNF stretch my wrists. Right. Or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Wrist flexors and extensors. Yep. I agree. So all these papers uh, have been linked in the description below. This has been episode 207 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast or January Research Review presented by Pioneer Belts for all your belting uh, wrist wraps, wrist strap needs, head over to generalleathercraft.com. Again, they'll custom make you a belt um, with a uh, nice warranty to it. And they got a lot of colors too. So if you want a leopard print belt, if you want uh, a zebra print belt, if you want, <laughs> like the gentleman I saw at the gym says, I eat peach emoji mm. <laughs> embroidered on the belt. I, I, I mean, if you want to put your dietary preferences out there, he's a fan of, you know, vegan list. Yeah. 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 Fruit <laughs> veg as Alan Flanagan would say. Uh, yeah. You can get it all over at uh, pioneer belts at generalleathercraft.com. Again, check out our new website, barbellmedicine.com. Please share one of your favorite articles. You can do that directly on social now. And uh, we've got new merchandise over there as well. The barbell medicine lifting club, our flags and banners, all that stuff's available for sale. If you want to support the brand and thanks as always for listening before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. So we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness for everybody here at barbell medicine. Hope you have a great start to your 2023. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.